Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Hey, there we are. Richard, I can still hear you without a mic above everyone else in the room. I'm Welsh, mate. Yep. Okay. All right, um, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Amos, chapter 5. If you have one of the... Uh, J. Ville Prez ESV Blue Bibles there on your seat or near you. That's page 912. But for the rest of you, you'll have to find it on your own. And please stand with me uh, for the reading of God's word this morning. <clears throat> okay, Amos chapter 5, verses 14 through 24. Bit of a longer passage this morning. Hear the word of God. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. <clears throat> Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. My friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, please take a seat. <clears throat> so quick question this morning. <clears throat> Have you ever seen a lion up close in person? Yes. Nate Moyer has seen a lion. What a man's man. All right. Now, I've seen lions on the Discovery Channel, National Geographic. I'm sure some of you have as well. I've also seen lions at zoos, okay? I don't know if there's anyone in here who before COVID uh, had ever seen a lion perhaps on safari I've never had that experience. But I think we'd all agree lions are majestic creatures, almost something of a paradox. They're these incredible, beautiful, majestic creatures. At the same time, they are absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Now, here's the thing, uh, my friends, this morning for us about seeing lions today in 2021, we're able to keep them at a safe distance through technology. So whether it's at a zoo and you see them far away down in their pen or whether you're watching them on Nat Geo or Discovery, we can appreciate a lion today and all of its ferocity without actually having to really be afraid. Okay. But what I want you to do 
is sort of suspend that for a moment and do a little thought experiment with me. Try and imagine in your mind that you lived in the time of Amos, about 2,700 years ago, okay? Roughly 700 years, 750 years before Jesus came. And imagine you're an Israelite and you're working out in a field. The sun is beating down on you. You're doing your work. And all of a sudden, you see a lion in person. But it's not behind a wall. It's not behind glass. Not on a TV. But it's looking at you, and it's there in the field. Okay? And it's looking at you. And you notice it's moving a little bit, licking its lips. You hear that little guttural roar in, its, in, the, in the, the pit of its belly as it's staring at you. And you look around, and you're the only thing there. You have just become lunch, okay? Now, imagine, honestly, what you would be feeling in that moment. I tried to do that this week, and I'm just really thankful I live in 2021, now, as you imagine the fear that you're feeling, let that feeling, that thought, stay in your mind for a moment. Okay? And as you think of that, listen to the opening words of the book of Amos. Keep that feeling of fear, of trepidation in your mind, and listen to what Amos says to God's people. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel, which was a mountain, withers. Okay. Now, in Amos' day, there was no way to keep a lion at a safe distance. Okay. Amos understood that. So, the question then, as we read the book of Amos... If you noticed when I read our passage today, it's got something of a somber feel to it. This is not one of the cheery, happy sections of scripture. This is a very, very intense, harsh rebuke. And Amos portrays God as a lion on the hunt, ready to attack his prey. Now, here's the twist in the story. This is the surprising twist. Who is the prey? Who is pictured as the thing or the one that, that the lion is going to attack? Hmm? Well, Amos does bring some prophecies against the surrounding nations around Israel, the pagan nations. But the vast majority of the book, in a shocking twist, is that God's people themselves, the Israelites, they are portrayed as the ones that this lion is getting ready to attack. So the question then, as we look at Amos this morning, is why? How could this have happened? How could this be the case? Why is God pictured by his prophet in his inspired word as a ferocious lion ready to attack his own people? What in the world has gone wrong in Israel <clears throat> to make this happen? And then if you're anything like me, your mind starts to race a little bit and you think, okay, Fast forward 2,700 years, here we are today in 2021. What does that mean for me as a Christian, as one of God's people? 
This is a bit unsettling, and it's supposed to be. This is what Amos and the prophets are doing. They're meant to unsettle us as we read them. Okay, so we're gonna look at that this morning. Uh, in verses 14 and 15, we have Amos's call to righteousness. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So Israel, God's chosen covenant people, they're the ones being rebuked here. So what was going on is they were saying, hey, God is with us. We're God's people. He made us his people at Mount Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments and the covenant he made with us. God is with us. We're, we're cool, right? We're on God's side and God's on our side. And yet what Amos is saying here is saying, no, God is not with you. God is not with you. Their behavior their sin had caused God to withdraw from them. Not permanently. God didn't permanently forsake his people. But in this time, God was not pleased with them. You see, back in Deuteronomy 28, uh, Moses had given the people of Israel uh, God's conditions of his relationship, of his covenant with them. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, it's a really long chapter. And he begins with saying, hey, if you do what God wants you to do, here are the blessings you're gonna have. And then he says on the other side, if you don't do what God is telling you to do and you turn from him and walk in the ways of all the other nations around you, here are the curses that will come upon you. It's Deuteronomy 28. And that's what's happening here. <clears throat> the people of Israel for centuries, okay, this is about 250 years after the time of King David. Okay? And after David died, you know Solomon's story, uh, his sort of a train wreck of a reign. Um, you know, he walked away from God, and then after Solomon, it was just downhill from there. As Pastor Dustin showed us a few weeks ago, sort of the storyline of the Old Testament. And so that's where Amos is at here, in that decline in the kingdom of Israel. And so the people were not walking faithfully in what God had called them to do and to be. So what were they doing? Well, in the book of Amos, uh, there are three primary sins that God rebukes his people for. Number one was idolatry. They were combining the worship of, of Yahweh, the true God, with the worship of false gods, bringing in other gods uh, from the surrounding nations and integrating them into their worship, which God hates. Uh, number two, <clears throat> lack of social justice. Now, that's a very hot topic today. This is not the same thing as the modern-day social justice movement, so don't let that term throw you. Uh, what was happening in Israel, according to Amos, is that the poor were being oppressed, and the little that they had was being taken away from them unjustly, and then the rich were denying them representation, as Amos said, at the city gates or in the courts. Okay? Also, Amos rebukes the people uh, because... In the, in the homes where they would have servants, um, the men in the homes would actually violate the servant girls. Okay? Rather than treating them like family, like God commanded them to do, they were treating them the opposite. And it gets even worse, and I won't go into that. Uh, you can read Amos on your own, and you can see specifically what he's talking about. And then number three, religious ritualism. 
They were showing up to their places of worship. They were doing outwardly the things that God had commanded them to do. And so they thought that, yeah, God's pleased with us, right? We're offering the sacrifices. We're doing what he's told us to do. So God is pleased with us. And Amos is saying, no, he's not at all, right? You're doing outwardly what he commanded, but your heart is so far from him. That's what Amos is saying to the people here. And so, um, I'll get into this on the Wednesday night Bible study this week more, but just quickly, God had given his law to his people, and God's law reflects his character, right? The reason that we're not supposed to lie is because God is holy, and God never lies, as an example. So Israel, since they were not doing what God wanted them to do, they were misrepresenting God to the rest of the world, right? So God was angry with them. Now, much like the people in Amos' day, the people of Israel, um, it's really easy uh, for people today to think that God has sort of moved on from these ideas of wrath and judgment and justice, right? Um, you know, people today don't like the word hell, right? Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable to think of God in those ways. Um, I know for myself personally, I have thought of God sometimes in ways where I don't acknowledge his holiness and I just want to focus on his love and his forgiveness and grace, um, but I sort of neglect to think about his holiness, his justice, right? Um, I've fallen prey to that kind of thinking. I imagine we probably all have, okay? And so to illustrate this briefly, I want to quote a brilliant theologian. You've all heard of him. You've probably, most of you have read him, C.S. Lewis. Any Lewis fans in the church this morning? yes. He's amazing. Uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, Lewis gives us this conversation that takes place between Susan, who's one of the little girls who had stumbled through the wardrobe into Narnia, <clears throat> as she's talking to uh, this couple, and they're both beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Okay? And Lewis writes this brilliant dialogue, and here's how it goes. I'll just read it for you. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Well, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I am to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. And she's speaking of Aslan, the lion. Is he a man? Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I'm going to feel nervous about meeting a lion, Susan said. <laughs> that you will, dear. Make no mistake. And Lucy then says, so he's not safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what we're telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And what Lewis is doing there is that Aslan is a picture of Jesus. And he's saying, this God that we worship is majestic and holy, and he is good. But safe, tame, this God that we can maybe domesticate? No. No. Our God is not tamed by us. Amen? God is who he is. And the prophets remind us that God 
is to be held in reverence by his people. God is to be feared by his people, to stand in awe of him and worship him. All right. Let's keep going here. Verses 16 and 17, God makes this threat to the people of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now, this is an interesting passage here, uh, because what God does here is he says there's going to be judgment and destruction in every part of your life and society, right? Agriculturally, in the home, all of that, everything. God is going to bring judgment upon his people for their centuries and centuries of unrepentant sin. And the language Amos uses here, honestly, is kind of chilling. God says through Amos, I will pass through your midst. And as I was studying this week, that kind of struck me and reminded me of Exodus chapter 12. Remember Exodus 12, right before the Passover, when God says, I'm gonna send the angel of the Lord into your midst and he's going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, right? God says, I will pass through Egypt and bring judgment upon them and upon their false gods. God uses the exact same phrase here to his people. He said, I will pass through you for judgment just like I did to the Egyptians. So what God is doing here is God is accusing his people of having become like the Egyptians because they were practicing the same sins, idolatry, bloodshed, oppression, injustice, sexual immorality, all of those things. So God was going to judge his people for the exact same reason he brought his judgments upon the nation of Egypt. That's scary, right? When you read this, it's like, wow, this is intense. This is really intense. Um, in the sixth century, St. Gregory the Great, one of the church fathers, he said this. He said, it is not enough to make a true solemnity of heart. From this must follow good works. What value is there in partaking of his body and blood with our mouths if we oppose him with our wicked practices, right? Sometimes the church fathers have this way of just summarizing things very succinctly, okay? And so my friends, this morning, it's a good reminder for us uh, that we need to remember that God does not change. The same God we read of in the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, the triune God of Israel. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this should motivate all of us to worship God and to stand in awe of him to stand in awe of him. Okay, uh, verses 18 to 23. Here's the rebuke. It sort of reaches uh, the climax here of Amos' prophetic rebuke against Israel. And he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. And then God says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Okay. Again, this is sort of the climax of Amos' prophecy here against Israel. And what he's doing is he's telling them this day that's coming, the day of the Lord, that you've all been looking forward to, you shouldn't be looking forward to this. All throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord, it's this theme that pops up and it's seen as this day when God will come visit his people, liberate them, bring them victory, defeat his enemies, right all the wrongs of the world and make everything the way it's supposed to be. That's the day of the Lord. And the people of Israel here were saying, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. This is gonna be great. God's gonna come and give us the victory he promised us. And God here through Amos says, why, Israel, are you anticipating the day of the Lord? You shouldn't be doing that. Rather, you should be fearing the day of the Lord. Right? Again, this is this really, it's difficult to see here. Um, But this is what God was saying to the Israelites, to his people. Right? He was saying, this day when I'm gonna come and visit you and defeat your enemies and right all the wrongs and give you victory, God basically, again, he reverses it and says, you're the enemy that I'm coming to defeat. Again, because of their centuries and centuries of unrepentant sin and idolatry and all of that. So this is intense, I know. I can feel the mood of the room. Um, I I felt this a lot as I was studying uh, for this sermon. And it's also convicting, at least for me, uh, because I look at this and then I look at my own heart and I say, what about me, Lord? I mean, I'm a Christian. I trust in the Lord, right? I'm a child of God through Jesus. Like, Lord, is it possible for me to get to a place of, of spiritual black backsliding and hardness of heart that I would be in the same condition? I hope not. I really hope not. But many times, my friends, in the New Testament, um, we are exhorted to continue on in the faith um, and not draw back, not turn away from the profession of our hope in Christ. Now, this is a huge topic, and I'm not in any way trying to open up a theological can of worms here. Um, I don't believe that that Christians can lose their salvation, Um, but there are warnings all throughout the Scripture to God's people, very severe Warnings, And I believe one of the things God does is God uses those warnings to keep his people on track, right? These warnings are in there for a reason, okay? And the warnings in scripture should instill within us a sense of that holy fear, of that reverence, that God is our father through Jesus, and he loves us, he is compassionate and tender and kind toward us. That is absolutely true, and I rejoice in that this morning, as we all should, But as Hebrews says, our God is also a consuming fire, right? God is holy. He is just and righteous. And that's what God is trying to tell his people, Israel, here in our passage. It's like, you guys have, not you guys, Israel, 2,700 years ago, Israel, you guys have been mocking me. You've turned your back on me. You have been doing the very things that I punished these other nations for, right? And God, I believe God is saying to his people here through the prophet, repent, stop doing this. Uh, And in fact, 
the people of Israel, this is the northern kingdom, uh, not too long after Amos prophesied, the Assyrians came down and destroyed their cities and took them into exile. Okay. Uh, and that was God's punishment for their sin. But the beautiful thing about this, about Amos, about all the prophets as we're going through this series uh, that we see, is that even in the midst of all of the judgment and the, the harsh, difficult language and all these things that make us uncomfortable when we read, God is not done with his people. The entire book of Amos, except for the last paragraph, has the same tone that we've been feeling this morning. Okay? But at the very end of Amos, there's a bright glimmer of hope. Right? And we'll get to that in just a second. But what is the solution? What does God want Israel to do about this? Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God was saying to his people, repent, repent. Practice righteousness. Do the things, Israel, that I have commanded you. The ancient Christian commentary on scripture says this, God wants obedience rather than empty ritualism. In addition to the ineffectiveness of ritual sacrifices, even songs and musical instruments may be displeasing to the Lord if daily obedience is lacking. Right? And so the answer to the question which comes to the reader from the very beginning of this why has this happened? How, how could God be saying these things to his own people? How could the prophets be leveling these, these harsh judgments against the very people of God? Right? I believe, well, there's a lot of reasons for that, but I think that we can kind of distill all of this down into one obvious main reason. And I think what had happened is that over time, the people of Israel had lost their fear of God. Things were going well for them. Uh, if, you, if you read through Amos, and I would encourage you to do that this week with the Ephraim co-op um, or on your own time and all of that, the people externally were doing great. The money was flowing. The, the nice new wine was flowing. Uh, they weren't under siege by any military enemies. Things were good. Things were peaceful for Israel. And I think they allowed that to just lull them into a place of spiritual complacency. They didn't have a proper view of God's majesty and of his grandeur. Okay. And so I think there's a good lesson in that uh, for all of us today. For myself, I've been thinking about this stuff this week and recently. Um, and I think that that can be said of, of much of the church today. I think that a lot of times, I know I do this, so I'm, I'm talking to myself here. Um, but maybe this will touch some people here in the room. I think that a lot of times we have sort of forgotten. We've lost that sense of the majesty and the holiness of God. Uh, R.C. Sproul, one of my theological heroes, if you know who R.C. Sproul was, uh, one time he famously said, the problem with the Christian church today is that we don't know who God is. Which I heard that and I just felt like, oh, <laughs> cuts me right to the heart. You know, because how often do I, I know in myself that's true? Right? I only want to focus on the verses that make me feel good, you know, um, which is why it's so good to be going through each book of the Bible 
uh, on these Sunday mornings like we're doing because we have to confront the difficult parts too, right? And so I think what happened with Israel, and if we're not careful, what can happen with us is that we get lulled into this sort of faith that we think it's about us, this sort of me-centered faith, right? And we sort of forget who God is. Uh, Israel enjoying their blessings and prosperity that God had graciously given them, I think they began to look at God and to say, yeah, like God exists to bless us. We're his special people, you know? And I think the same thing can happen to us as well. It's easy to get into this mindset that God exists for me, right? God he, he's there to meet my needs, to answer my, my questions, to solve my problems for me. And certainly God does those things for us. But my friends, we have to remember that at the end of the day, we exist for God. In Revelation chapter four, the apostle John wrote, speaking of Jesus, all things were created by him and for him. And for his pleasure, all things exist. Right? You and I exist for God. He doesn't exist for us. And that is really, really good news. You know why? Because it means that you and I are not the center of the universe, right? The planets don't revolve around us, which is great because that'd be a lot of weight to bear. We couldn't do that, right? So as we close here, what is the solution then uh, for you and me? What do we do about this? How do we make sure that we don't slip into the spiritual complacency like the people of Israel had, right? Well, as in all things, uh, the solution is the gospel. The solution is the gospel. Because in the gospel, we have two things. Number one, we see how we're supposed to live. But number two, we are given by God the power to live it out. That's the glory of this new covenant when God said, I will write my law upon their hearts, right? We are given the power to do the things that God wants us to do. God doesn't say, thankfully, God does not say, all right, Scott, here's what I want you to do. Good luck. Come talk to me when you get it down because I wouldn't get there. I wouldn't get there. Thankfully, God says, I'm gonna make you mine. I'm gonna fill you with my spirit. Now that you're mine, here's how I want you to live, right? It's the gospel. Praise God for the gospel. We live from the place of forgiveness and acceptance with God, not for his acceptance. That is the good news of the gospel, my friends. Jesus has made this possible for us. So I want to read to you uh, here as we close, a quick couple verses from Luke chapter six, verses 46 to 49, a very familiar passage, right? And in this passage here, Jesus is sort of taking on almost the same tone as the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus says this to those listening to him. This is part of his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, hears my words and does them, I'll show you what that person's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. 
And so there's a lot here, but just quickly, Jesus's point clearly is he's saying, it's not enough to just hear the word of God. He wants us to hear it and put it into practice to do it. And again, this is where we come back to the gospel. We're not made right with God because we do good works and because we obey perfectly. We don't, we can't. If you're anything like me, you know that about yourself. I know that about myself. And that's the good news. Jesus obeyed perfectly. Jesus kept the law and fulfilled all the obligations that God places on us perfectly. He did it for us and for our salvation. And that's the good news. That's the good news. And so I think here there is sort of a counterintuitive beauty in these harsh prophetic denunciations spoken by Amos and the other prophets and even by Jesus himself. All these prophets, the Old Testament prophets, looked beyond the judgment to when God would restore his people and he would dwell among them once again. And what they were looking forward to was the new covenant. Okay? So Amos and the other prophets here, they paved the way for the new covenant, and the new covenant is written in the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what these prophets were pointing to. And you and I are the gracious recipients of the new covenant. Our sins are forgiven. God has written his will on our hearts and filled us with his Holy Spirit. He's made us his children through Jesus. And he empowers us each day to live for him. This is the gospel. It's the good news. Amen? So when we read Amos in the Old Testament prophets and we feel that sense of despair, and like, why is God like a lion ready to attack his people? We don't have to fear because God did, I hate to use this word, but attack one in our behalf. And I don't like using that word. That was not a good thing to say, but you know what I'm saying, right? God himself becomes human. He goes to the cross and he takes all the wrath and the punishment and the penalty for our sin in our place, right? And then he rises from death three days later and offers this glorious salvation to all who will repent and trust in him. This is the good news. That is what Amos and the prophets were pointing towards. And that is wonderful, wonderful news. So we obey and we walk in holiness not to merit God's favor, but because in Christ we already have it. That's the good news. So as we praise God for his mercy and for our salvation, as we close and as the band comes up, um, also let's think about the privilege and the responsibility that we have to share this good news with others, with those who don't yet know God through Jesus. Right? How could we keep it to ourselves? Right? And so I want to encourage you guys, myself, I've been thinking through this and we've been talking through this as a church. You know, how can we, as Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, uh, how can all of us in, as Dave Fennell would say, our spheres of influence, how can we all be making disciples and introducing people to this amazing grace of God? How can we be doing that, right? And if you have any questions about that, please come talk to me after service or uh, send me an email here at the church. Love to talk with you about that. Um, some great, great things uh, that we're thinking through. Um, so with all of that said, uh, would you please stand and pray with me? And let's pray and then sing as we thank God uh, for his mercy shown to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Father, we 
your people in Jesus are humbled. God, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you, uh, God, that even in the midst of the difficult words of Amos, um, that, Father, your love and your grace and compassion still ring through. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but through Jesus, you have reconciled us to yourself. And that, Father, the punishment for sin that we deserve will not come to us because it was poured out upon your son, Father. We thank you for this gospel, for this good news. So, Father, bless all my brothers and sisters here this morning, God. Thank you for them. Thank you, Father, that, Lord, all of us who trust in Jesus as your children, we are dearly, dearly loved by you. God, thank you that you are kind and you are also holy. In Jesus' name, amen.